Welcome to Emergency to Emergence, a podcast produced by Sterling College. I'm Nakasi Fortune. And I'm Dakota Lacroix. This podcast intends to engage in spirited, heart-centered dialogue about intersecting eco-social emergencies, featuring the voices and perspectives of people purposefully engaging in ecological thinking and action, while fostering active, community-engaged responses that offer hope. And joining us today is Laura Beebe, who is faculty in environmental humanities here at Sterling. Laura has lived and learned in a range of landscapes and culture, from the warm sands of the Gulf of Mexico to the frigid shores of the Bering Sea. Regardless of where or how she's working, Laura seeks to understand how humans make sense of the world around them. Her practice and teachings intersect storytelling, backcountry field experiences, ethnobotany, plant medicine, folk arts, and spiritual rituals. Thank you so much for joining us, Laura. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it. Laura, can you share with us what your definition of backcountry is and what does it mean to you being in the backcountry? Backcountry is such a descriptive term and it's also quite subjective. I think it's I think it's a state of being as opposed to a geographic location. If you think about it, backcountry is behind the country or behind civilization or human activity. I don't think it necessarily has to be there. There are sort of political and ecological definitions of it. But for me, it's any place that I can immerse myself in the natural scape. And that is the predominant experience that I'm having, whatever the ecosystem is, that the relationships I'm engaging in that place is centered around, controlled and modified by the surrounding environment. And I think you can find that anywhere. I think there are places that get you into that psychic space quicker in some places that it might take a little bit more time. I think it's what you bring into it. But for me, it's a place where the ecosystem or the environment is uh, the predominant relationship that you're working with, and then all these sub-relationships of, of people and experiences and other life forms, however we describe it. But yeah, it's a place where I just, I feel home, I feel connected, I feel alive, and I think animated in sort of the best sense of myself. So that's for me. It's a backcountry means. It's always evolving. Is there an early story of a mentor or a guide in your life that shaped and influenced this current relationship you have or definition of backcountry? I think I, when I go through different life stages, try to make sense of where I came from and how that influences where I am today. And there's all these little landmarks, even to my first memories of a, as a child, like playing with worms or watching a deer in a field or building little forts in the back. Uh, backyard. So I think it's always been a part of who I am and sort of a compulsory experience. I just would find myself in these places um, with, you know, some help along the way. I think where it really crystallized for me was being a teenager and going to do a backcountry course in the American sort of West, the Rocky Mountains. I was born and raised in Alabama. I didn't have any context for that landscape. I had never been on a plane by myself except to go to my grandparents' house just to stay over. So I flew across the country and stepped off 
into a vastly different area. And I had instructors there who were able to help um, help me figure out how to live there in a way that was more comfortable, that I felt like I could be myself. I don't think I don't think it just happens a lot of times if you don't have a, an experience or a context. It can be really great to have a mentor who can see you and figure out what's going to be best for you and introduce you. It's like for me entering into a relationship. How do I get introduced to this place and this way of being? So I had some amazing instructors who felt authentic and inspiring and energetic. And I saw how they moved through the mountains and how they moved with a backpack and how they moved in this way of life and just helped me along the way. And it was not natural. I cried my entire first week of my trip. <laughs> I dropped my sleeping <laughs> oh, bag no. on the ground. Um, Cause it was just so different. I just felt like I was dropped off in a completely different culture and like a foreign planet somewhere. And so I do think those earlier experiences really helped me. And I've been leading what we call wilderness trips for over 22 years. And I think about that every single time my students arrive, like, what did that feel like? I showed up actually for my backpacking trip with a big bow in my hair and some <laughs> pearls. <laughs> I had no idea how out of place I was going to be or was all I knew is what I had seen around me and reflected back to me. So yeah, lots and lots of little experiences and mentorship along the way. But I think that very first time and those very first people I met. How do you get from crying your first week while at camp to where you are now? I think there are a lot of influences that got me there. I think there are a lot of people that got me to where I am. I would have to say the women in my family, none of whom had any background in anything that I was doing or even really understood what I was doing, but just some strong women who were secure in themselves, had this really amazing grace to them and took the time, particularly as a teenager and a young adult, to help me through some of those crisis stages and really just believed in me no matter what sort of off the wall thing I wanted to do where they just didn't understand. And I think just some really amazing teachers that saw that I had the interest and the potential. When I was 17, I did a course in Alaska and I was a really slow hiker and it was rainy and I couldn't read a map. And I had an instructor pull me aside and said, I'm going to help you figure out this map. And I think you have a lot to offer. And I spent an hour with him and I figured out how to read a map, which is fascinating because I ended up getting a graduate degree in geography and I'm the first woman in my family with an advanced wow. degree. Just seeing that all connect, but having someone believe in you. And then after that, I asked, you know, do you think I can be a professional in this field? And he was said, absolutely. And from that moment, I would tell people, I'm going to be a professional. I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. <laughs> this is what I'm going to do. And I came back from that trip and I went back to my high school in Southern Alabama and said, I'm going to be a professional outdoor educator. And no one had any idea what that meant, but they were like, you seem inspired. You seem excited. <laughs> you seem like you're going to make it work. And I think that has gotten me there. But I also think the absolute love of being outside in these places with these people, because it's hard. There's, there's sort of the romantic Instagram behind it, but then there's the practicality. And I am teaching this adventure literature course. And we were talking yesterday about when people go on these expeditions or when they do these big new changes in their lives, there's some great ahas. And we go because we are bored or we're dealing with the mundane or it's time to go out and do something exciting. But in that excitement, if you're really going to do it, there are these long periods of monotony and doing the same thing over and over. So I 
I always find this funny juxtaposition of I need to go out camping, I need to go hiking, I need to go biking. And then I'm out there mile after mile, day after day doing the same thing, but somehow it doesn't feel mundane. It feels like a new sort of creation every single moment and every single time. And I think that's why I keep doing it. Yeah, I also feel this big need to pay it forward. I, I feel like I am the culmination, particularly of a ge- like generations of women who worked really hard um, to get me to this place where I have choice and I have the freedom and the access to experiences, to positions of power, to opportunities in which they couldn't, I think, even dream about. So for me, that has also been a driving force. And I just love seeing people figure out who they are in this really beautiful way. And I think when you look at it like service and you can move beyond just what am I getting out of it, it keeps you going. Is it safe to say, Laura, that many of the early mentors were mainly men? And Mm -hmm. if you could speak to some of that, paying it forward and some of the barriers maybe facing women and minorities, I guess I'm just so curious as to like how it's shifting from your perspective. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think most people would agree that the outdoors has definitely provided amazing opportunities. And I think it is, there are barriers all over the place, which is really interesting if you think about it, because we evolved um, doing these things. Every culture on the planet has had a relationship with the natural world. We have a history in finding our food, growing our food, being connected, moving in our, our bodies, being connected with our water sources, with our soil, doing work. And yet it, it's often in my lifetime just been in this box of who gets access to that and how do they get access when a lot of actual practices that we do come from cultures who <laughs> developed these technologies and ecological understandings and steward these lands and have deep spiritual connections and significance with these places that that we go. So I think there's just a lot packed in there. I think there's some conversations starting definitely an incredible way uh, distance to go with it. And I think there's conversations and I think there's actions. And I think that there are lots and lots of actions that could happen and should be happening at a more rapid pace. So from the meta perspective of being human, it's really interesting to be like, okay, we have to look at why this is happening and what happened because we didn't just discover the outdoors. Like the notion of outdoors is a, <laughs> is a very constructed sort of academic term that mm-hmm. came when people were separated, this like outside, inside, wilderness, not wilderness. And that doesn't work for everybody. That's every different cultural worldviews. There are different what we call cosmologies, epistemologies of ways you know about your own realities that are, are quite different and quite clashing. I think in my teenage program years, my earlier sort of camp programs, there were definitely women there. When I got into longer courses, more technical courses, particularly around rock climbing, ice climbing, mountaineering, um, I, as a young adult, was really into high mountains. And then I got into Arctic studies and Arctic travel around the age of 24. And all men, by the time I got to higher ed, I studied this as an undergraduate, had one female instructor my whole time there. Every mountaineering program I went into, all male instructors. And mostly male participants, there might be one other female. Sometimes there were 
three of us, which was seen like as really good enrollment. If you could get three women and seven men, like that was really good. And that wasn't always the reality. It has been a particular narrative and a particular position of power for certain people. With that said, it's also this interesting dynamic because I am here because of really awesome men. I wouldn't have been able to have some of those doors open. I wouldn't have gotten the technical training I needed. I wouldn't have gotten the support and I wouldn't have been able to do it if there weren't men that just stepped up and said, this behavior is unacceptable to my male um, peers or coworkers. If folks hadn't seen some of the barriers and difficulties there and really creatively worked and went out of their way to help with that. So yeah, it's a complicated quagmire. And I think this is replicated in any domain that you want to look in. But I do think the outdoors has been this weird pinnacle in a way that it, it just shouldn't be like it doesn't even make sense because like i said we all have these relationships all of our cultures if we look back into it started in these places i really respect linda black elk who she's a a water warrior and a leader um she's also an ethnobotanical professor at sitting bull college and i've heard her speak a number of times and she really advocates that everybody has plant knowledge in their cultural backgrounds you don't need to come pick sage from her particular landscape or her reservation, you have an equivalent wherever you are that has the same medicine. And it's really important that people understand their ancestral lineage with that, that it does exist. And we'd all be healthier and make different decisions and think about the world in different ways if we understood that and made that a priority. You're both an ethnobotanist and cultural ecologist, and this gives you a particular lens through which you view the present moment and the mounting intersecting ecosocial crisis facing humanity. What at the core is wrong with the way humans are organizing themselves, spending their time and expending their energy? What could we do differently to avert the crisis of our own making? Yeah, one thing that I've been thinking about for the last couple of years is this great quote by a Southern Baptist preacher that I follow, where he said, we've got more degrees in the thermometer right now, <laughs> but we, we don't have as common sense. We need grandmother common sense right now. And he, he was specifically talking about George Floyd and what was going on, but, but broader as well, um, with the coronavirus and just the way that we're living our lives. I think some of these things are getting back to basics of common sense sense like what i agree what do we need to be healthy whole people and some of those things are what we have always had relationships with one another mm. meals with each other feeling connected feeling connected is so powerful in some of the contemporary cultural ecology theories right now is that we used to say people needed shelter food water, all these tangibles. But what they're finding is they need meaningful social interactions. That is a indicator of health and life expectancy. And that hadn't been factored in. It's not a materialistic, it's not empirical per se. Some of those things, yes, are helpful. But we're like these full things <laughs> and the things that we have always done, there's some solutions in there. But ultimately, for me, I think a lot of it comes down to common sense. And one thing that a mentor of mine always says, if you don't know what to do, do what makes you feel expansive versus contractive. And the things that actually make us feel 
expansive are things that humans have always done. And they're usually connecting with people or like getting up early and watching the sunrise or working with their hands or listening to someone who needs just someone to listen. And I think that actually can go quite far. And in that same vein, Laura, you've spoken before about, you know, how learning to read maps changed your life and, and sort of guided you to the career path that you're on today. What are some of the metaphorical maps that we need to learn to read to navigate our way back into the right relationship with the rest of the natural world? That's a really interesting and great question. Well, for me, I start with the inner landscape and my spiritual belief system rests on this idea that the inner reality is reflected in the outer. My teacher always said a person who can reform themselves can reform the world and Gandhi was one of his followers. And so I think there's something quite um, something there that has worked. And it's something that I really focus on to start with, like what is going on inside of me? What are my own barriers and limitations? If I can address those, I can work more efficiently at some of the other barriers on the exterior of understanding that I can be more resilient. I can have more energy. I can be less attached to sort of my smaller sense of self in whatever situation that I find. And I think giving people the space and time in valuing that process of exploring the inner landscape, I think would revolutionize the world. But I think prioritizing the time and the space and the value of understanding ourselves and then understanding the immediate relationships and understanding those relationships beyond that. And it takes time. It takes time and where do we value time and how much time do people actually have like who who takes our time where do we give it away and this idea of luxury luxury is having spaciousness to do some of these things and i think we have to look at structures and we also have to look at where we put our own our own value systems and how that moves out i think with that if you can bring it in the mentality of the world you walk around you are more observant of the natural systems. You are more sensitive. There is more empathy, whether that's watching a sunrise or being engaged with, you know, an animal move across a lawn or seeing sort of the sentient or spiritual value of a rock or a glacier or something that's not supposed to be living. And yet many people feel like it is very much alive with some sort of spirit or personality or right to be there. So I think those are some of the metaphorical. I'm not sure if that fully answers it. I feel like I want to sit with this question for maybe the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) You really spoke to the importance of experience. Mm -hmm. And what comes to mind here are the four phases of experiential learning. Experience, reflect, think, and act. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if you could give our listeners a sense of what that looks like in practice when you're teaching in the Southwest. An example that would be very tangible and is easy to go to is the field of geology. So we do teach geology on our semester course. We often hike to the bottom of the Grand Canyon and come back up, which is, depending on the route, about a 5,000-foot descent and a 5,000-foot ascent. And you are traveling through all of these different layers of time and incredibly diverse uh, geographic stratification. And your body is moving over them. Like you remember when you're on certain shale layers and the textures of it, or you remember when you hit this 
layer of red rock where it's awesome because it finally flattens out and it's it's not jagged and there aren't these boulders that you're moving around or some of the limestone creates these caves where you can tuck in and get some shade if it's really hot out of there. So something we will do, and we do this over and over, is we will have an experience in that landscape. We'll front load it. We'll have a lecture about here are the rock types and here's what you can expect. And that might sink in maybe like 10% or 15%. For some people might just get it and they love it and they're their brains are sort of function that way and they're intrigued by it, but most people just aren't. And I think that's how learning often happens. And so when you go through it, then we can come back and we do a mapping exercise where we map all of those layers and we talk about the history and we talk about the mineral composition. So there's the reflection of what did we just do? What did it feel like? What was your favorite rocks to hike on? Um, what was above that? What color was the rock? 75 feet, a thousand feet above that. What was exposed? What was what had you know junipers growing on them? And then we can start to to put the puzzle together in a very informed way. And so I think that's that's often what we do. So we would go hike and then reflect back on what we did. And oftentimes that will be creating a visual of what we just did. And then we will have lectures around it and we'll make educated sort of interpretations as classically what naturalists do. It's not an evasive form of science. It's an observation and interpretation of, of what we think is happening. One of the things that I really like about teaching in the field is it becomes your whole day and night. And people start to dream about seeing the animals that we talk about or we might have tracked or we might have seen in the distance. They start dreaming about bears or mountain lions. The conversation eventually becomes about what we're doing what kind of weather we might experience, what we saw, what, what sort of swimming holes we hope to see. Are there going to be polywogs and frogs in there? Um, is the water going to be clean and fun to, to drink? Or are we going to have to <laughs> filter out all this sand? So you're just living it all day. And everybody is thinking about that. And particularly on the semester course, we have a whole ancestral lifeway section where we learn about the the multiple generations and cultures who inhabited these places and still inhabit these places. And so as you are looking for water sources, you can easily, you're living like the same, in some ways, very similar ways where people would go to these places to get water. And when you go there, you often find pottery shards of where people had walked with their pots to fill up to get water in the way that we're walking with our now jeans. And you 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 can feel the generations and sometimes even for some people the ancestors who still inhabit these places and and it's it's not an abstract thing it's not this distant place it's real and you can feel like you're you're actually on someone else's land because <laughs> you start to look and there are pot charts everywhere and there are discoidal pieces of people making cutting edges it's this really great sense of impermanence and it puts you in this huge human scale of it's not just me in 2020 when the pandemic is happening. It's not just me post that. It's, it's me since time began, as some folks would say, this people began here when the earth was created. And so I think when we look at some of the ills in the world, I think just feeling disconnected is one of those major ways. And I think feeling reconnected. I teach mythology, I teach in the humanities, and I love it when students recognize they're part of this very large, long lineage that we are both spectacular individuals and we're actually very predictable at the same time. <laughs> I think there's a comfort 
there's a comfort in that because a lot of the narrative is I'm all alone, I'm unique, I'm this, I'm that. And yes, and yes, <laughs> think about all those people who came behind you, different sort of outside visuals, but in some ways doing really similar, dealing with loss and love and gains and confusion and triumph. touched on this before, you know, the romanticism of the outdoors and the natural world and being a backcountry guide or an outdoor educator or whatever you want to call it requires a lot of training and experience for a number of reasons, you know, specifically with the risks involved with leading a trip. And, you know, both guides and participants or students, they show up with their own baggage and their own trauma. What challenges or gaps do you think currently exist within this space and how can organizations try to fix those? I think the conversations are just just starting. I think recognizing that people show up with a life already and it doesn't disappear when we start camping or moving or when we have a campfire or when we leave the parking lot and that they're with us. So people are bringing past relationships into the present. So I think recognizing that it is, it's a service position. It's not about you rock climbing. It's not about you mountaineering and doing your amazing challenges. It's about you serving and helping other people. And I think you really have to love that. I think there's some really interesting work starting that a number of people have really spoken up against. This idea that when we talk about risk management, we often talk about the physical risks of rockfall or flooding, like river crossings. We talk about people's decision-making styles and how personality challenges can lead to risky places, but we don't talk about how things like racism and sexism and homophobia and all of the oppressive forces are actually risk management of like... Mm. There are physical ramifications that can happen. There are emotional traumas that can happen. And without understanding that, the experience of the participant might be vastly different than other participants. And if you look at the research of who's enrolling or who doesn't stay on a course or who has an accident, they will fall often down some of these lines. And I think that that is a big area for growth. And I think there are a number of people who have been speaking out against this. So the Wilderness Risk Management Conference that's happening, it's put on by Knowles, it's happening this fall. We are starting to see these topics come in as an actual, like, not just, oh, it's good practice, or it's good practice to be trauma-informed, or it's good practice to have instructors from these identities of the participants that you're working with, or from their communities, or from their country. It's not just the good thing to do, but it's also like, it's the professional thing to do. It's the safe thing to do. It's the good education thing to do. It's on all aspects of that job description and the, of what the industry is, is doing. Because I really honestly feel like anyone who wants to be on these trips or who wants to do some of these things should. It's a right. It's a human right. And it's what we have been doing. So the industry needs to do a better job. And there's been really great folks advocating for it. What are some of 
your primary values that guide your work as a backcountry guide and experiential educator? For me, I always looked at myself as a facilitator. There's some really great profound quotes out there by people that are much more articulate. And I always sort of land on some of those quotes around, I can't open the door for you, but I can help you get to the door. And I think that allowing particularly younger people this space and the freedom um, and the encouragement to try things and do things and own whatever they're doing, but doing it in a place that is, I'm not going to use the word safe, but you've got a container and you've got someone there who, um, if you're about to do something that is going to cause serious harm to you or other, or other people or unintended harm, that they're going to be able to see that because they can see what you can't see. So having that comfort and security of knowing that there are these uh, sort of handrails along the way, but giving folks the opportunity to discover who they are, who they want to be, how they want to grow, giving them the support and the mentorship, but letting it be a self-guided experience as much as possible in a sort of graceful and sophisticated way. And that's always been my guiding principle. And I started with teenagers and I think it works really, really well. And I think we would have a lot less (laughs) angst and behavior problems and (laughs) just a lot of hardships if we allowed younger people the encouragement and the confidence to say, no, I believe in you. And I think that's for me, what was really helpful in the mentorship I had. And then also giving feedback when appropriate, when folks want it, when they're open to it, to be like, I see this in you. I see this in you. And I would really encourage you to continue on that direction. And I'm seeing this in you. And I might encourage you to think about doing it this other way of seeing you do it and finding some tactical ways to do it. But ultimately, it's not my trip. It's the individuals. It's the students. Who are you? What do you want to be? You're a unique being. And this moment's unique to you. So when I, when I talk about helping people find meaning in their life, let's put you in the complexities, help you find meaning, and I can reflect back on, back on things and help you, help you make a little bit of sense. But ultimately, it's your reality. And Laura, as we come to a close here with our conversation, what, what in your heart and your head here is emerging that brings you hope, for lack of a better word? I know it's an overused word, and yet, what is it, or at least getting you curious and inspiring mm-hmm. you that's coming from all of this wisdom over the years here? I think that suffering and challenges has always been a part of the human story. It, it just has been, and it's it's different for different people in different ways. So recognizing it's there and that it's, it's just part of being a human. So why not engage in it directly? Because that's what we're up to. I do think that we're called right now as humans in ways that maybe we haven't been or that just looks different. And I have some great spiritual mentors who are like, we are born for these times. Like, We are here. Because we have the capacity to rise to the challenge of, uh, of being joyful in this journey and that it's not about having fun or avoiding it. It's about fully embracing what is in front of us because that is exactly what we have showed up for and that we're not alone, that there are so many amazing folks out there doing really incredible work 
and that there have been generations and generations and 2.5 million years of hominid history behind us, pushing us, pushing us forward. If we can get ourselves in some of these situations, we can definitely get ourselves out of these situations and we can do it in ways that are fun, creative, inspiring, connective, and just makes the whole, the whole journey totally worth it. I, I think if you enter it begrudgingly and with fear, that's not going to feed you. There's a, a great piece by this Norwegian. I don't know if I even call him a scholar. He's a personality. His name was Arnie Ness. He wrote a piece, something to the lines of the self, the ecological, ecological self-realization. And he was writing in the 40s and 50s. And his response is, the ecological crisis are directly as a result of our social ills. And if we are going to address it, the, one of the only things we'll get there is an absolute love for nature and for each other and the joy of life. It, it can't be done out of fear. It's not going to sustain you. It's, it can't be done um, with lots of resentment. Like Those things are part of the process. But if you want to do this and you really want to see the world, you, that, that, see the world how you want it to be, one of the most sort of uh, renewable energetic source in addressing these is, is joy, is connection, is love. And, and that, there's no limit on that. And it, it can grow and swell in connection with other people and in our relationships with the natural world. So it's hard and it's a grand adventure. That's a beautiful way of, of bringing things to a close, Laura. Thank you so much. Yes. For yeah. Engaging in this very enriching conversation. Um, I personally learned a lot, you know, and as someone that's now getting into this leading students on, on you know, excursions and courses, it, it's, it's quite fascinating to be learning from, you know, a, a genius such as yourself. So okay. thank you so much again. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I can again add nothing to that because other than <laughs> just this is such a joyful and educational experience to be able to ask you a few questions from all your experience and have access to this knowledge and again this wisdom so thank you so much yeah thank you all if you enjoyed this conversation do come back for the commendation. We'll spend a few more minutes with our most recent guest, identifying the specific works that inspire them so you can root further, draw new sources of nourishment, and connect to the emergence of vital possibilities. And before we come to a close, Sterling acknowledges that the land on which we gather, places now known as Vermont and Kentucky, are the traditional and unceded territories of several indigenous peoples, the Abenaki in the north and the Shawnee, Cherokee, Chickasaw, and Osage people to the south. We also learn in and from a range of landscapes that belong to other indigenous peoples in more than human kin. As we seek deep reciprocal relationships with nature, we respect and honor the place-based and cultural wisdom of indigenous ancestors and contemporaries. Words of acknowledgement and intention are just a first step. We must match them with acts of respect and repair. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to Emergency to Emergence wherever you listen to podcasts. 
And a very special thanks to Sterling alum Fern Maddy for her musical creations. For more information on how Sterling is advancing ecological thinking and action, visit www.sterlingcollege.edu. If listening has prompted something new to emerge in you, we invite you to share your thoughts as a written message or voice recording, which you can send to podcast at sterlingcollege.edu. Until next time, this is Emergency to Emergence. Emergency to Emergence.